Good morning. We have hit a milestone in our parenting in the Suits household. No, I'm not talking about James being potty trained, although that's quite nice. I'm also not talking about the fact that Miles can read now, although that's pretty incredible. Of course, I'm talking about the reality that every night, Miles and I read the Chronicles of Narnia. I've been longing for this day since my 20s. Parenthood has finally reached its culmination as we've opened up these wonderful books by C.S. Lewis, these beautiful allegories for the Christian faith that formed me so significantly in my childhood. I think my most vivid memories I have of my youth are sitting in my mother's lap as she read to me the Chronicles of Narnia over and over and over again. In fact, I would say most of my theology was pretty well baked in from those early days. While maybe I disagree with Lewis on a couple of things, somehow or another I came full circle and became an Anglican through those books. Um, but as I've been reading them, I have been struck by something. We're, fine, we're about to finish The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We're three books in because we read them in the right order. Don't start with the most boring book first, The Magician's Nephew. Don't start there. Your kids won't love Narnia if you do. Start with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the best book, and then move from there. But anyway, so we've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and now The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it's striking what happens every time Aslan enters the scene. There's confusion, there's often bickering, no one knows who's in charge, and then Aslan enters, and there is no doubt as to who the authority in the room is. What they say, or what he says, they do immediately. When he enters the battlefield, the victory is already won. Uh, when he enters back into Narnia, the witch's spell begins to dissolve and spring and life enters back into his kingdom. When he uh, breaks into her terrible castle, what does he do? He breathes upon the statues and life re-enters them. He enters into Narnia always as the undisputed king. Now, I think Lewis is trying to teach children not only uh, this great image of the love and the sacrificial care of Aslan as he dies for Edmund, but also the reality that as Christians, we have a king. And this has taught children throughout the ages and now, and also parents, to remember the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a theme that we don't often touch. We want to hear about Jesus as Savior. We want to hear Jesus about healer. We want to hear Jesus as friend. But Jesus as King is hard for all of us because it inherently dethrones us from our lives. It reminds us that there is only room for one ultimate authority in the cosmos and one ultimate authority in my existence. And that throne can only be properly held by our Lord Jesus Christ. Each year, as we prepare for the season of Advent, this season where we remember the first coming of our King, we enter into that season by reminding us, I think, helpfully that we're not, you know, because the Christmas season, as we're anticipating, we remember that the infanthood of Jesus, right? The humanity of Jesus. And so we begin that season with Christ the King to remind us that a King has come to reign over his people to deliver his people, and to bring order back to his kingdom. 
And so today I want to look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, where we're going to look at two realities of kingship, particularly the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, kings speak order into the world. They speak order. And second, kings bring peace to their kingdoms. So if you would, turn with me to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, as modern people, we have a hard time understanding the ordering function of a king. Because how is our society ordered? Our society is ordered by a complex legal code. Many of you are lawyers, right? And so I see a lawyer smirking right now, right? I see two lawyers smirking right now. We have a complex legal code that structures our society. Now, many of us complain about the nature of our legal code, that it's too complex and too unwieldy. But as society grows, the complexity of the legal structure has to grow with it. If it doesn't, our society becomes unwieldy and there's no capacity to rightly discern what is in order and what is out of order, what is legal and what is illegal. Now, we get our legal code through a long history from the Romans. The Romans were not the best metaphysicians, they were not the best philosophers, but they were experts of legal structure because they had an empire bigger than anything the world had ever seen. And in order to rule an empire that large, especially a republic, you have to have an ever-increasing legal code that goes with it. But we forget that before the Roman Empire and adjacent to the Roman Empire, and after the Roman Empire, when the empire dissolved, those legal codes were largely forgotten or those legal codes were never known. And so the way that order was brought to a situation, the way that order was established in a kingdom was by the fiat and word of a king. A king spoke order. A king, you can think of him, was a living law. This is why it's so significant that Solomon, when he became king, the first thing he prayed for was what? Wisdom. Because he was given the Levitical law, right? You see it all over like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That didn't cover everything. There's a lot of issues that those two books don't cover. And so what you need is a king that can bring order to a disordered situation. Do you remember the story of the two women who are bickering over whose child is whose, right? He has to use wisdom to bring order to that situation. When a king speaks, order is established. And what we see going on in Hebrews chapter one, we might completely miss it unless we see it through this lens. What we see is Jesus is being revealed as the king who is God himself, that spoke creation into existence, 
By his divine right, he said, let there be in creation burst forth. Now, that's an image that most of us understand, right? Jesus spoke, he is the word, and creation breaks forth. But it's also interesting. Our passage today reveals that it is the continual speech of King Jesus that upholds creation, that if the word himself ever stopped speaking, his kingdom would dissolve. The only way you and I can be here, the only way existence can be upheld is by the word himself continually, perpetually speaking us forth and bringing forth his ordered and perfect world. Now, when we, why, why do I think this is occurring? Whenever we see language in the Bible of air, talking about Jesus, or the right hand talking about Jesus, those are the kingly images of our Lord. So let's go back to our text. Look at it again with me through these lenses, this image of the king speaking and ordering with authority. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, the king over creation, through whom he created the world. In the beginning, God said, and the word spoke. Look, then look at this. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here we see this beautiful image of the word sitting in absolute authority over his creation as the one who calls it forth and sustains it by his power and authority. Now, how does that apply to us? How can that change our lives as all, at all? How can that help you understand your relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ any differently? Well, in order to answer that, I think the great Anglican Richard Hooker might be helpful. Hooker was probably the greatest theologian of the second era of the Reformation. He lived from 1556 to 1600, and he wrote kind of the book that solidified Anglican theology, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. All the lawyers in the room are immediately going to go home and buy a copy of that and just pour over it. However, what, is, what does he mean by this? Well, he, Hooker believed that the world is governed by laws that God baked into creation. Now, when he says law, he doesn't mean the law of like Leviticus or the law of the Ten Commandments, the law that I talk to you about a lot, the law that you can't keep and Christ Jesus kept in your place, right? The law-gospel distinction, that's not what he means when he says law. What he is saying when he says law is something more like the laws of physics, right? The laws of mathematics. What he means is the order and structure and end towards which creation is ordered. And so Hooker believed that everything in life had an order and a structure and an end towards which God had made it. Now, he's not original in this. This is actually how pretty much every Christian thought about the world pretty much forever until 
pretty recently. Um, but God created the world with ends in mind, purposes in mind. And therefore, what we see in our passage today, when our God, our King, spoke forth His creation, He ordered it and structured it with purpose and intention and means whereby His name is glorified and His creation flourishes. And human beings will only find peace. Human beings will only find an ordered life when they actually live within the order of the King. I think it's helpful for us to understand sin in our lives. I've talked to you all about different ways we can understand sin. Often what we think about with sin is just, you know, don't do it, right? Bad. But I've tried to encourage you, well, okay, try to understand why you sin, right? When you feel out of control, you, you try to grapple control, right? And often that leads to sin. Um, it's often a pacifier in our lives. It's a way that we soothe ourselves when we feel like the weight of the world is crushing us. So we go to things in our lives to find peace, but actually over time create disorder. Well, I think often sin is when we step outside of our king's order for creation. And when we place ourselves as the authority in our lives, ordering our own lives by our own wills and our own choices, trying to create our own order in our personal lives, in our familial lives, in our work lives, in our civic lives, in our ecclesial lives, in all of these spheres of life, and then what happens? We spiral into disorder. And we feel that something is off in us. And we can't explain why, we can't, you know, put our finger on it. But the reality is, our lives will never be ordered when we refuse the order of our king. And it is so easy today to look out into the world and see very egregious examples of disorder, very outrageous examples of where someone else has stepped outside of the reign of the king. And that, I think, has become a wonderful mechanism that the devil is using inside of the church to get us to look at outrageous examples of disorder so that we miss the subtle disorders in our own lives, the subtle ways we have dethroned the king in our existence, the subtle ways where we feel this sense of lack of alignment with God. Somewhere, somehow, we can't put our finger on it, but if we truly took a step back, we would say, my life is out of order here. I have refused to submit my whole self to Jesus here, and it is creating ripple effects of disorder all the way over here. And so my prayer for you this Advent, as we grapple with the authority of the King in our lives, would be that you would take a break from seeing the sin in others, especially the outrageous sin that we love to point out in our culture, the outrageous disorder, and to take a moment in those still, quiet evenings as you sit in front of the glistening Christmas tree and ask yourself, Lord, where is my life disordered now? What bulb is the one that has gone out that has made the whole string turn off. Where are you calling me 
to submit my whole life to you, the only one who can properly hold me in his hands. And to take a break from the internet and all the other resources that we love to use to look at the sins of others and to actually take a long look at where we have dethroned Jesus in our own lives. Brothers and sisters, the only one who can truly order you, the only one who can truly order me, the only one who can truly order this world is our gracious and loving King. But it's important to remember something. This side of heaven, we will never experience the full ordering of our King. We can experience ever-increasing order by the power of the Holy Spirit as He sanctifies us. But at the end of the day, our ultimate ordering our right relationship with one another, with ourselves, and with God only comes through the atoning blood of our King. So what I want to look at next is the reality that kings bring peace amidst conflict, right? Every great story that we love to read is a story of a king that brings peace amidst conflict, right? Um, David had to slay Goliath. He becomes king. He had to continually fight the Philistines to bring peace in the land. Aragorn, right, with, with, his, with his squad, has to go beat Saruman to bring order to Middle-earth. Uh, and there are just countless examples throughout history of kings that actually have to do something incredibly difficult. They have to enter into a conflict in order to bring peace to their people. And we see that the ultimate peace that has been won by our Lord Jesus Christ is the battle that only one could fight. The one who can conquer sin and death and bring us back into reconciled life with our Lord and our King, our God. Look back at our passage. Look at how this passage concludes this image of kingship. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This last line, uh, after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What we see here is after he had won for us the victory by dying for us on the cross, by living a perfect life in our place to offer to the fa our Father in heaven a perfect sacrifice of righteousness, by being buried in a grave so that the Spirit might raise him up by breathing forth life back into him, by ascending into heaven so that he can stand in the very presence of God and bring us with him so that we're no longer afraid of the Father, but can boldly enter into his presence. At that time, he sat down in victory. Because what do kings do after they win? They sit down and they rule. This is the, the greatest image of smack talk ever proclaimed to the devil in history. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that mean? His work was complete. He brought us peace. 
It is not a hypothetical peace. It is not a, oh, shucks, I wish kind of peace. It is an objective reality that we are at peace with our Father in heaven, and our King has won the victory for us. And so, how do we respond to this? I want to propose two ways. First, we live for the glory of the King. Those who have been delivered from the oppressive tyranny of someone by a delivering king are the ones most committed to live for his glory. My favorite character in all of the Chronicles of Narnia, I wish it was Aslan. He's, he's God, right? I can't, you know, um, but it's Reepicheep, right? Reepicheep's the best. And I didn't know if that was just me, but he's already Miles' favorite character. And I don't know if it's because I do it in a funny voice, but I love Reepicheep. Why? Why do I love Reepicheep? Because he is someone completely sold out for the glory of Aslan. Everything he does is for his glory. And yes, he's a torn up character because a lot of it's for his glory too. If you know his character and Aslan has to, you know, he has, he has to get rebuked for that quite a, quite a bit. But he lives for the glory of the king. And I think this is a beautiful image of what the Christian is called to. Those who have been delivered from much, oh much. And we are a people that are not called to live for our own glory, for our own name, uh, for our own title and authority, but for the king himself and his glory alone. Where are you living for your glory? And where is our king calling you to lay down your crown and to live for his? But the second thing I want to encourage you of how to respond is we are now also called into the king's service. We are called into the king's service. He delivers us, but he delivers us for a task. He delivers us for a work to do. In his kingdom, he establishes, but he works through his people to bring his kingdom to the world. And this is why at our church, we care so much about church planting, because we believe the best way to reveal the king to the world and the best way to show forth the kingdom of grace, of what it looks like to be delivered, what it looks like to forgive one another, what it looks like to live for the glory of the king has been revealed to us through the church. Last week, I was reflecting uh, a little bit. We had some visitors with us. My friend Dan is a pastor on Capitol Hill, and he texted me earlier in the week, and he said, Tim, uh, an Anglican priest and his wife are going to be visiting you this week. Just say hello to them. I'm sending them to you. Um, oh, great. He said, oh, yeah, by the way, they used to babysit you. Um, because let's be honest, there's not, I don't know of any other Tim Suitses. So they said, yeah, my friend T Tim Suits, you got to go visit his church in, in, in Denver. Dan and I are really old friends. Um, so they said, well, well, I don't know a Tim Suits, but I know a Timmy Suits. And we babysat him when he was a year and a half. Um, and I asked my parents, they were like, oh yeah, we, we know Alan and Dana. Um, they were college kids at the church that my parents helped plant. And there's, in my little, difficult, complicated, poor, very rust-belty hometown of Richmond, Indiana, uh, God decided to plant a church. And from the Presbyterian Church in America, that's the denomination I was raised in. 
And my parents lived in Muncie, Indiana, and they experienced a revitalization in their faith through the college campus uh, church, Westminster Presbyterian, and Westminster decided they wanted to plant in the town next door of Richmond. And so they went, and they helped start this little church. And the local pastor, Mike Malone, who was only in his 30s when they planted, he was the one guy who had the audacity to go on Earlham College's campus. And Earlham College is this little liberal arts school in Richmond run by Quakers, and it is the most comically liberal place on the planet. I mean, uh, yeah, they're the tip of the spear on everything. I mean, they look, make bold, CU Boulder look like CCU. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique place. And these two college kids experienced this revitalization in their faith through this young pastor just coming to town and taking time to meet with them. And similar to some of you who helped plant our church with us when you were in your early 20s, uh, you gave a gift to many parents in the room by babysitting their kids so they could go out and do ministry or whatever. And my dad was a young elder and my mom was a young principal of a Christian school. And so this young couple in their early 20s came alongside them and watched us so that they could go off and do work or enjoy time together or whatever it is they were doing. And this little church in Richmond, Indiana, has had an incredible impact on me. And in many ways, our church is simply redoing that church in Littleton. It was a liturgical church. It was a Reformation church. It was a joyful church. It was a family church. It was all the things I love about our church. And it was interesting sitting down with this couple. And I asked them, was it as wonderful as I remembered? And they said, even better. He got a call to ministry, and he helped to plant a church in Canada. Um, and he told me, I said, was my dad a good man? And he said, Tim, I'll never forget your dad took time to make sure I was always doing okay in the difficult work of planting. Um, this church sparked churches all over the country. This little irrelevant church in the middle of nowhere in Indiana, our church wouldn't exist without it. And what it reminded me of is that our king has chosen to do his work in the quiet, small, irrelevant things of this world. Our king has chosen to do his work through the reaper of the world, and we want to be the centaur instead. And this is why we support planting, because church planting gives us this opportunity of entering into places where there is a gospel deficiency with the kingdom of God and while it might look small like an ember in the moments, it lights a flame of gospel ministry for generations to come. Just this past week, my dad sent me a, a, a YouTube of, of a testimony, and I was moved to tears at my, my little home church that there was this woman who had just come out of prison uh, with her son. She was a single mother, and she was talking about how the church had come alongside her and helped her to experience the power of the gospel and re-enter into life. All this through 30-some years of church planting ministry. And brothers and sisters, this is why we partner with plants. This is why we send out church plants. It's because we want to be a small part of the ever-increasing kingdom of our Lord to bring forth His gospel ministry in the world.
Our world will only experience order. Our world will only experience peace when our world experiences the gospel ministry of his people, revealing his grace and his kingship in the world. This season of Advent, we're going to be looking at the kingship of Christ. And again and again, we're going to be putting forward our church plants with you, not as a marketing campaign, not only as a way to encourage you to give to them, although we will encourage you to do that, but also to remind you the importance of expanding the kingdom of God to bring forth order in his lost world. Let's pray. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are the one that can bring forth order in our lives. You are the one that can bring forth peace in this disorder that we face. Lord, would you show us areas where we have dethroned you and, start, and uh, attempted to establish our own authority? By your spirit, would you teach us to cast down our crowns before you, that you might be the only king and only source of order for our lives and that we might proclaim your hope, your order, your gospel to a fallen world, to the glory of your name. Amen. And now, family, would you...